0: All right, I am going to start us off with some prayer, and then we are going to have an interesting class. We're going to uh, get to Proverbs, talking about Proverbs in Scripture, um, lowercase p, Proverbs in Scripture, but then we're going to start off with a little bit of word um, nerdiness, uh, and uh, let's start off with some prayer. Father God, I am grateful that we are here together today. Uh, We are gearing up for morning worship where we will be able to um, give just a small uh, gift compared to what you have blessed us with in our tithing. You give us a chance to worship you through music. You give us the chance to uh, pray to you, to connect to you spiritually and obey through prayer. Lord, but you also give us the chance to be uh, edified, built up, given wisdom through the preaching. I pray today that that would be the case and that uh, for those sitting in our congregation who are yet um, to to believe, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be effective and use the message from today to bring those to you, Lord. And I think uh, additionally, we have our Sunday school going on um, right now, and I pray that as Hannah leads the children's Sunday school and as they're practicing their Bible verses and practicing their song, Lord, I pray that you'll be with them while these these things they talk about to be the seeds that are used eventually to bring them uh, to you, Lord. Pray you bless the rest of this Sunday school. May we uh, better interpret our scriptures as a result of today. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's start with our review. Uh, how do we interpret apocalyptic and hyperbolic passages? Anyone want to fill in that blank there? According to the blank um, perspective, while portions of Revelation may be forward looking when initially written, almost all events described in Revelation already have taken place, most in the first century or soon thereafter. Preterist. Preterist, yes. Uh, The blank uh, approach view or the view approaches Revelation as a blueprint of the entire span of church history. Thus, portions of the book describe the past while others look to the future. Historist. 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 And then, um, Blank View sees Revelation as describing the spiritual realities that re- recur throughout history until the final consummation. <laughs> Idealist. Idealist. And then Blank View sees the majority of Revelation as applying to future end time that occurred directly prior to Christ's return. Futurist. 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 There we go. All right. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking forward to this the this section. I do not, grammar is not my preference. Math, I will take math all day. But um, we're kind of going to go through some some different forms of figure of speech to better understand what's going on. But I think um, kind of an interesting example of just how language shifts and how there are things in language we accept um, but don't realize it, I think can be found uh, in the example of the word nimrod. Um, so we know who nimrod is as a character in scripture, but in English, if you call someone a nimrod, you're kind of <laughs> calling them a dunce, you know, a simpleton. How is that the case? The character Nimrod in the Bible is not is not an idiot. There's no nothing describing him as as a fool necessarily. But it is, if anything, he's described as a master of beasts, as a hunter, a, a wild man. And so it is. We can thank Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, in mocking his hunter, called him a Nimrod. He was he was taunting him. He's actually being sarcastic because, like, great master of bees, she can't even hunt me, calling him a Nimrod. And yet, now, here we are, whatever, 50 years after he started saying that, just about nobody outside of the church or those who read their Bible would understand that Nimrod is a person in the Bible, and most people would think, well, Nimrod's got to mean some kind of incompetent oaf, and instead, it's really, uh, it's just a sarcastic way referring to what is the original use of Nimrod, which is in Scripture, and I think we see this a lot with language. I know I went through these. I actually quizzed my dad on a bunch of these, stumped him on a bunch of these. Um, yeah, I, I give him like a, a C plus. Um <laughs> As homeschooled, it's about time I get to hand out some grades. But um, as we're going through this, there's so many of these that you recognize you use. Once you hear the example, once you use it a little bit, you realize it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You use these figures of speech. And Scripture's no different. Where it is consistently throughout Scripture, um, where we have these figures of speech and we can get ourselves in trouble if we aren't aware that figures of speech are happening in Scripture. So we're going to look through some specific examples, and um, and look. I'm going to give you a definition of the item. I'm going to give you a modern example, and then we're going to look at a biblical example. So if we have the mic here, I think it's here. I'll give it to Mark. And as always, we're going to go through the bold, um, the bold scriptures as we go. Um, so. Uh, whoever's next in line, take a look at the next upcoming bold. That's where um, your next verse is going to read if you're comfortable reading. So a metaphor, a figurative description applied to a person or thing without overt terms or com- of comparison. So the example here is speak softly and carry a big stick, West African proverb quoted by Theodore Roosevelt. And then if we want to look at Uh, Amos 4.1, and while that's getting pulled up, uh, the idea here of a big stick, it's not overtly referenced what that big stick is, but that big stick has a meaning um, that maybe someone who is, uh, let's say, a foreign or an interpreter trying to understand the big stick may not understand um, directly, but uh, because it's not overtly referenced.
1: Amos 4.1. Amos 4.1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring
0: that we may drink. Okay, so I think an idea here, when he's calling these women the cow Sebastian, like there's there's thoughts here about these very posh women, and um, he's describing the opulence of what they have, and yet um, uh, the issue with them, and so the idea here is that um, them being... Cows is a metaphor um, and doesn't overtly reference them. So our next one is more is an overt reference, a simile. So it's a figurative description applied to a person or thing with overt reference using the words like or as. So our modern example, my mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. So in this case, you have life being a box of chocolates, but you're getting... Direct reference to it by saying it is like a box of chocolates. You're describing the thing that you are um, using a figurative speech for. So let's look at an example, biblical example in Psalm one, verse three.
2: He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers.
0: Thank you. So that like in at the beginning is a good signifier for us that we're seeing a simile the word as can be used in the middle or a lot of times as the deer panteth for the water Um, right so you'll get a simile um, signal by like or as so now we start getting into some fun ones we got merism which is a figure of speech in which two elements together stand for the totality of something um, so the examples I have here is from, for, for those of us that are married have said this likely at, at uh, our wedding vows, for better, for worse, in sickness, and health, for richer, for poorer. And so it's the idea of two items together referring to the totality uh, of that. Um, so let's look at an example um, of a whole list of them in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 10. Thank you. So um, you see merism after merism there. So oftentimes they can be contrasting in order to um, express the completeness of something. But um, uh, sometimes you'll see this uh, like another modern example. I think we, it even came up at men's ministry is the idea of like hook, line, and sinker. The idea of you're using multiple words together to describe the entirety of something. Um, so let's look at the next one, a hendiadys. I had to look up how to pronounce this. Um, a hedonidus is an expression of one idea with two or more similar words. So, my coffee is nice and hot. So, when I say the word similar there, it's the same tense of a word. So, a noun and a noun, or a verb and a verb, adjective and an adjective. So, my coffee is nice and hot. What I'm trying to communicate is that my coffee is hot in a pleasant way, in a way that is nice that I like. So, instead of saying, my, co- my coffee is nicely hot... Or, you know, describing the word hot and to ultimately describe the coffee, you use these two adjectives together. My coffee is nice and hot. Um, and so uh, this, this one is used probably the least in modern English language, but is um, uh, rather important in Scripture. Uh, and we can see an example in 2 Timothy
2: 1.10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished the death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel.
0: So abolished death and brought life and immortality. Life and immortality. You could use one, you could use the other. Life, immortality. Immortality would presume life, but there's a... fuller expression of communication by using two words. So we see this a lot where uh, in scripture where it will describe something using almost a, a lot of times a lesser word than by a greater word, but they're both um, applicable. Okay, so dietus, Uh So now uh, synecdoche. Um, so and these words, if you're wondering why the pronunciations and things like that are a little interesting, it's because a lot of these are actually first occur um, or given words that we use in, in Greek, so in, when they get pulled over into English, um, you get some interesting pronunciations, but synecdoche, uh, it's an expression in which the part represents the whole, or the whole represents the part, so the modern example, have you seen my new wheels, you're referring to the part, the wheel of the car, but you're referring really in reality to the entire car, and we can see an example of a synecdoche in Matthew 6, 11.
2: Give us today our daily bread.
0: So what is daily bread there? Is it really just that you're asking for my morning toast? That is what I'm looking for? No, there's, there's more to it. It's, referring, it's a piece referring to the whole, the idea of ongoing sustenance and, and perhaps even greater that, than that, just ongoing fulfillment of needs. And so this is the idea of a synecdoche. You, you refer to something in reference to the greater. Uh, So then a a metinomy is an expression in which one word or phrase stands in for another, closely associated one. Mm -hmm. So modern example I have here, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. So in this case, the ears are so closely tied to listening or sound. Another example I'll give uh, that I think is, I guess, more modern than Shakespeare would be saying, um, I heard from the White House there's additional sanctions on Russia. The White House is a residence. It's not saying anything, but the president is so closely tied to the residence that by referring to the White House, everyone understands you're referring to um, the president. Uh, so, in this case, uh, you'll see, uh, I think, a pretty good example here um, in Luke sixteen twenty nine through thirty one.
2: But Abraham said, "They have Moses and the prophets; let them hear them." And he said, "No." Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead.
0: So Moses here is our uh, Um So Moses, the idea here is he's so closely tied to the Torah, to the law. When he says if they have Moses, it's not like they have his bones or something that they're they're saying, well, if you have this physical possession of Moses um, th- in this scenario, instead it's referring to, well, they have the law. They have the law given by Moses, and Moses is so closely identified um, that you can say Moses, and it is understood what is meant. Okay, so now we get into an interesting one here. This one... Um, I think we're going to look at the next two kind of together because they often get confused, which is a personification versus an anthropomorphism. So a personification, the keyword is going to be represent, and um, anthropomorphism, the keyword is humanize. So personification has is a represent, representation of a thing or an idea as having the qualities or actions of a person. So the modern example is the... Um, tagline, Oreo, milk's favorite cookie. So you're giving it a human um, quality. In this case, having a favorite is a human quality and an Oreo cannot normally have that quality. And anthropomorphism, on the other hand, is a humanization of something. So it makes it more human. So um, uh, humanizes non-human things such as God. So we'll look at an example of each of these in a second, but um, I think it's helpful to contrast them. So the example I give is Thomas the Tank Engine. You're not describing the cookie as having a favorite in this scenario. You are making it more human by giving it eyes and a mouth, very creepily so. Um, and, and so, like, the, the kings of anthropomorphism is Disney, right? Almost every – you suddenly a horse has eyebrows, so you can understand the emotion, right, of, of the animal. Or things like that, Or they'll even give objects, you, you know, they feel human or that they communicate – that is an anthropomorphism. It's taking a, a non-human thing and making it more human, whereas personification is describing a lot of times or representing a thing as having human qualities or actions. So let's look at an example of personification, so that representation in Matthew 6, 3 through 4. When give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what you and your right hand is doing. So in this case, not letting your left one hand know the, what the other is thinking, there's not brains or ways of comprehending from one hand to the other, but the idea here is you're, you're giving it a human-like quality, but it's less realistic than an anthropomorphism would be. Um, uh, in, in this situation, I think most of us think of descriptions of God, and we'll see that in the Second Chronicles passage. But the personification there, you're giving your hand almost a human-like quality to help describe in this figure of speech. So let's look at an example of anthropomorphism in Second Chronicles
1: 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars.
0: So any time in which God is described as having body parts, right, is a a really common way we're usually taught um, about anthropomorphism um, because the idea here is if your catechism question, what is God? God is the spirit. He does not have a body like men. So um, giving him human qualities, right, eyes searching, ears hearing, things like that. Right hand of God. Right hand of God. There you go. So the idea here is it helps us understand. It's a figure of speech, but, again, in the purpose of interpretation, if you do not take it as a figure of speech, you're starting to draw your anatomy of God, that would be wrong. Because we're, we're told more directly that God is a spirit um, and does not have a body like men. Okay, so on the back side of the page, we have um, an assertion by negating the opposite. So this one happens all the time in English. How are you doing? Not too shabby. The weather's not bad today. You're... you're Describing something by saying the opposite, and let's see uh, an example of a uh, lightity in Acts fifteen two. And
2: after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about
0: this question. Okay, so no, no small like they're they're describing the that a pretty significant debate happened by saying they're. There wasn't a small one, right? So in this case, you could have um, uh, you could have described it directly as having a great debate, but instead by saying no small, um, it's a different way of describing it um, by using the negative to assert the positive, um, or you can always use the positive to assert the negative. So lastly, we have idioms. So idioms, uh, a lot of these things that examples we've given could sometimes fall under idiom. But an uh, idiom is a group of words having a meaning not deductible from the individual words. So the example I give is beat around the bush. And there's also a societal quality to it in which people can say something that sounds like an idiom, um, but it is not an idiom because it's not really I- accepted as one, right? So the example get by Plummer given in the book was um, if someone said, like, I weigh, uh, like, feeling very full after eating a meal, you say, I I... I, um, I'm as big as an airplane. It's like, people understand what you're communicating, but it's not really an idiom because people don't say it. But if you say, I weigh a ton, right, you don't literally weigh a ton, but that's maybe something people say, something weighs a ton, and so that might be more of an idiom. Um, but the key here, and why this matters is, it's a group of words having a meaning not, you're not able to deduct it from the individual words, So imagine interpreting that, this is where foreign speakers, I know for myself trying to speak another language, right, Spanish and things like that, if you ever actually literally Mm -hmm. translate those things, it gets a little confusing or can get real confusing. Um, Or if you go somewhere and use a figure of speech, uh, an idiom in uh, English, you'll have a foreign speaker a lot of times not understand what you're trying to communicate. They're probably trying to interpret what you said literally. So what I've done here is given you a whole bunch of figures of speech, and the idea here is not to remember. Oh, that you know, this is a light at ease. I, I know what this is now. Um, the bigger idea here is that the these portions of scripture are pervasive, and I'm realizing now. I think I've done this to Cindy multiple times, where I've messed up my verses. We never read 1 Kings four twenty-five.
3: I was getting ready. I saw to the change. look.
0: I saw the look. Thanks. <laughs> Go ahead.
3: Okay. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon.
0: Thanks. So Dan to Beersheba. We see this reference a few times in scripture, in the Old Testament, around kings, um, and I think Second Samuel in particular. Um, the idea of Dan to Beersheba, top to bottom of, of the kingdom, right? So... Dan at the north, beersheba at the south. So the idea of top to bottom, and we see these references of Dan to Beersheba. So um, that is an example of an idiom.
4: Thank you,
0: Cindy. Yeah, thank you. I yeah. I I expect us to ref, refer to each other, refer to things as from Dan to Beersheba from now on too. Um, no, that the idea here is that um, we're going I'm gonna open this up for some discussion for a bit. Um, we moved quickly to allow us to discuss. But the idea here is not to have a series of English quiz answers, right? The idea here is to realize how pervasive figures of speech are, even in modern-day English. And they do exist in our Bibles quite a lot. We saw an example for each one of these in just about a different book for almost all of these in Scripture, Old and New Testament. And then additionally, it's a thing to be aware of and a reminder for those who were around for the Sunday school about um, where where our scriptures came from, read your footnotes. There is a whole lot of work done by interpreters to see figures of speech and smooth them out for us. In particular, if you have a more dynamic translation. So think of NIV onward, right? So there's some that... um, a lot of translations that you would read something and you wouldn't know it was a figure of speech used in English or in, in the original language. So where that can come into play potentially is you're, now a job has been done by the interpreter to under try to understand the, the, the phrase, the figure of speech, and now put it into a more readable form in English context. And we even have somewhere... Um, They take a phrase and almost put it in the form of the same figure of speech, but in English context. So we still get a figure of speech, but maybe it's the example is just tweaked just a little bit. So we this happens in scripture, um, and something to be aware of. But what I haven't done is actually tell you how to interpret these things, and I kind of want you all to tell each other. So how do we go about like what based on how these Sunday schools have gone? Any thoughts as to um, like how do we go about being Uh, aware and interpreting these figures of speech. We've got a hand here. uh, Someone has the mic? Sean, put his hand up. Hang on. Uh, It's got to be on the mic. Okay. All right.
2: Ambiguous leadership. No, (laughs) you're you're good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) No, so the first thing is just recognizing that it is a figure of speech, right? And I, I think that comes... I'm just kind of taking my best gut instinct at this. But when you read it and it's something that um, doesn't make sense unless it's a figure of speech, then you have to consider, is it a figure of speech, right? Uh, And I think that's probably the best tell. Uh, Anything more we need to talk about regarding
0: identification? Well, I would say, yeah. I would say um, that makes sense as a slow down and look kind of approach and be careful of the opposite. Sometimes a figure of speech could with us not understanding cultural context could, up could like from Dan to Beersheba is an idiom for the whole land, but you might think, okay, where's Dan on my map? Where's be- Beersheba yeah. on my map, right? And so I would say be careful in the negative context of that, of that saying, oh, I, this makes sense to me. This must not be a figure of speech. That, that could get you in trouble if you did the opposite. If that makes that, sense.
2: Yeah, that's great. Completion. That's wonderful. Thank you.
0: Any other thoughts on, on you know, how do we approach interpreting figures of speech? <laughs> so,
1: ultimately, we're trying to get at what the author wants, wants to communicate. So it, I think it encompasses all the previous things that we've talked about, knowing context to the degree we can, understanding some of the ancient Near Eastern context, and doing our homework to know uh, what's being said. And I would just add what what I think is really neat about this is that it again reminds us that God used real people to communicate His word, and they used figures of speech. And it's not a manual. It's not a it's not a standard operating procedure um, in a in a three-ring binder. It's it really is the way that people talk, but we have to go out of our way to search the scriptures to identify what it is that he's actually communicating through the figures of speech. And so how much work do you have to do to figure out what the figure of speech is? I don't know, but you got to do it.
0: Rob Roy has got a hand up back there.
4: Between the... um personification and the anthropomorphism, Mm -hmm. it covers a lot of ground. One of the areas that, uh, and we tend to get it, we tend to get those, that when God has wings or the face of God, you know, our benediction says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to have his countenance countenance upon you, lift it up. Um, We understand that, you know, that's an anthropomorphism and that we're not literally talking about um, the invisible God having a face or wings or hands. I think the area that's a little bit tougher is anthropopathism, where we're talking about ascribing emotions to um, something that doesn't have emotions. And with God in our confessions, um, it interprets the scripture as God not having passions, not having emotions. So when we read in the scripture that God demonstrated his love, or that God so loved the world, or that his anger was kindled, showing, or that he was, it, it pleased God to crush his son, that there's some sort of change in emotion, that's anthropopathism. Pathism, Where, to us we get a sense of a a rising or falling in God's anger or in his love which we have to be able to translate and say that's that's what it's like but that's not what it is. God's anger doesn't rise or fall. God's love doesn't rise or fall. His love doesn't get greater for you. It doesn't get less for you. In us it's affections but in God it's perfections. Right? So um, I It sounds a little bit like personification, but it's not quite. So I think that's like an important area to to consider is the emotional piece, not just the physical attribute to the non-physical.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, uh, on on this topic as a whole, uh, I need to keep us moving forward, but on this topic as a whole, um, I think... We've heard it from all three of our examples, which, one, I would say, you know, Sean, this idea of, of identifying something and slowing down um, is, is really helpful. But I think uh, getting to understanding what is being communicated here, right? So if, if a newer Christian were to read that God, let God's face smile down upon you, you may think that, that it's that. But if you read the entirety of your scripture— um, you, you would be aware, and I think most of us in the church understand that. However, um, these figures of speech are are best interpreted when, when considering the author's intent, context, and the context of scripture, and then how it fits in um, into these items, in particular things that affect the character of God, so in this case the anthropopathism. So I would, I would encourage you, uh, unfortunately we're getting kind of repetitive with Consider what the author is thinking. That's that's what we're trying to get at. But for a lot of these um, figured it, figures of speech, where you can get yourself in trouble is reading a figure of speech and not reading it as a figure of speech. And I think that happens uh, quite a lot. Some of the more controversial, I'll say... Um, uh, examples I didn't use um, because we don't have time to fully go into them. But there are some of these that people debate. Is this a Hendiadys or not? Is this a, you know, and and they're trying to understand. And I think I also want to, I I, I reference the interpreters. I want to give credit to the interpreters as well, because here they are studying a dead language that is thousands of years old. And they're looking at that and they're finding idioms and things like that um, through context and um, putting them in a way in which uphold scripture and yet we can read um, is quite impressive all right i'm gonna keep us um, moving here so now um how do we interpret proverbs and i'm i'm the p there is capitalized because it's a it's a header and that's how we i've been doing this on the paper but it's supposed to be a lowercase p there are proverbs throughout scripture um, but we see it as them especially highlighted in the books of job ecclesiastes and the book of proverbs And so if you see the lowercase p, I'm talking about the item of a proverb or a proverbial saying as opposed to the book. And so a proverb is a concise observation on the normal workings of life. It is not inherently a promise, but pragmatic wisdom that has many exceptions. If you see the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see. But let's look at a quick example of this in Proverbs 1.7 and Ecclesiastes 1.18.
4: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction.
0: Ecclesiastes 118. For in which wisdom is much much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay. Wisdom is vexation. Wisdom fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We should be gaining wisdom, and wisdom causes vexation. Um, the idea here, and we'll talk a bit more about the perspective of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, is um, uh, it, the idea here is that these are not hard and fast rules on certain things. Uh, on this specific example, we'll talk about uh, a little bit more later on in terms of especially the thesis statement of Proverbs, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, but the uh, not every proverb you read through um, will be guaranteed pro- or promised to you, um, especially on a human or earthly timeline. So let's look at um, the book of Proverbs um, as a whole is cl- broken up into two sections. First nine chapters, discourse of a father, Solomon to his sons, um, and the wise sayings are told from the perspective of the father and through the anthropomorphism of wisdom as a young woman desiring to be sought. So we see an anthropomorphism, and let's look at First prover- uh, Proverbs 1 20 through
3: 22. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge?
0: So there's this beautiful anthropomorphism of wisdom as this woman calling into the streets, begging for men to seek her. Um, uh, to seek this wisdom. And then we have chapters 10 through 31 that are the series of sayings that we, we probably think of when with Proverbs or we, we often recite to others or think of um, in relation to things. And we're not actually, I apologize, Grandpa, go ahead and move to the second Timothy passage because we've already read Proverbs 1-7. But the idea here is that through these sayings and through even the beginning portion, The whole book is rooted in that initial statement in Proverbs 1, 7, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to see this again in Ecclesiastes and Job, where you can almost get, you need to have a certain portion of that book to really unlock and understand what is the rest of that book. So how do these proverbs differ from any non-biblical proverb, though? Like, there's a lot of wise sayings out there. So how, especially some of these, they're very pragmatic and they may not seem about God. So then how did these differ than something else a different wise person said? Um, and let's look at Second Timothy three sixteen through 17.
3: All scripture is God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work
0: thank you so we have this wonderful circular nature of uh the reason the proverbs in the bible are different than proverbs outside of it it's because they're in the bible they were chosen by god to be provided for us they were breathed out and then additionally you so that's the the kind of positive argument and then on the negative argument you know that because they are scripture they are perfect they don't have errors and if you go back and look at a lot of wise sayings, there's sin in a lot of them, or are things that are just wrong in a lot of them, um, and, and would be contrary to the things we're taught in Scripture. Okay, let's, uh, so uh, Proverbs, uh, when we read Proverbs, we must understand the intent and situational application. So uh, here's a fun one. I don't know if anyone's had this when reading through Proverbs and going, what did I just read? Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Oh, good. It was my grandma. She's been teaching me to read Proverbs since I was a baby.
3: Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Uh, say, Oh, excuse me. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. I use NIV, which is a little bit easier to understand. <laughs> It took me several years of prayer and studying before I understood this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we are told in back-to-back verses to answer a fool. Okay, so we're supposed to answer a fool, and then in the next verse we're not supposed to answer the fool, or vice versa. They're, they seem like contradictory statements slapped right next to each other, um, which is incredible. And and what Plummer points out in our book is um, the idea here is the situation and intent of the application. And, and um Two verses later, we can actually see um, uh, kind of a helpful uh, description of, what, of of this particular application. So let's look at Proverbs 26, verse 7.
4: Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools.
0: Okay. So um, the idea here, I think, can be applied to this, you know, these two what seem like or what are contradicting on their face statements in Proverbs um, by the idea of like, are you going to be giving a fool a proverb by giving or giving them wisdom in which they will make no use or not change their behavior intent in any way? Or are you going to prevent a fool from being further foolish and able to stop them, right? So again, these these are wisdom from God, wise things. But they're not promises, and you have to understand the situation and context in which they might apply. Okay, I've got four minutes. Um, while most proverbs have exceptions, some proverbs do not have exceptions. So we, we kind of started with saying there, there are, proverbs are not inherently promises, but there absolutely are, promise, are, are proverbs that have no exceptions, and they could be considered as a promise. And this is especially the case when we hear the nature of God described. So let's take a look at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19.
3: These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren.
0: So I feel absolutely comfortable saying that it is, not a, it is a promise and there is no exception. God does not sometimes hate hands that shed innocent blood and other times doesn't hate hands that shed innocent blood, right? This is something describing the nature of God, and subsequently it will always be true. We must keep God's perspective in mind, so in particular, think timeline here, Um, when reading some of the intervening or justice portions of Proverbs. um, And I think we see a really good example of this with Asaph. He goes through a whole series, before the portion that's going to get read by Rob Roy here, he goes through a whole series of describing how the wicked are prospering. But then, um, after lamenting on all of these injustices, he he claims Psalms 73, 14 through 16.
4: For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned
0: their end. So it's this idea of once I enter the sanctuary of God, I there's this more complete and full understanding. There's this repentant nature to his earthly understanding and the flaws of his earthly understanding of this justice. And so in particular, when we read about portions of justice, we need to keep in perspective God's eternal justice and that God is a just God, not that, wait a minute, the wicked are prospering, but Proverbs said in other ways, this is how the wicked will not prosper. And so we must keep God's perspective in mind. Okay, so um, we're going to do a quick... We went in deep in Proverbs, and a lot of these applications apply to Ecclesiastes and Job as well. They each have their unique things in this wisdom literature category. Um, but we're going to hit on both of them. But I think... Um, Uh, actually the the what was really helpful for me in understanding the context of these three items of wisdom literature um, Bible Project has a a really good video where they kind of show a picture where you almost have Proverbs as the young Solomon talking about this is how the world kind of ought to work here's how the world works here's all these wonderful Proverbs then you get to Ecclesiastes and you're like this guy is talking about the meaninglessness of life, the wicked prosper, all these things that are almost, there's almost this, like, bitterness to it. And it's almost this man, instead of the young man bright-eyed and and talking about the wisdom given to him um, of the world, now has seen how things in the world are sometimes contrary to what you would expect from Proverbs. And then Job can almost be considered the man who's aged even further and has more of the context of it, and has seen great failures and great wins, and yet in the end has this more eternal perspective that is repentant and leans on God. And so it's this imagery almost of all of these things are true, and yet they each have their place in understanding the mindset of, of these different sayings. And so, with that in mind, Ecclesiastes, it's a monologue, and the initial part and the very end is a, um, is a, from the perspective of a scribe hearing this monologue from this wise man, and um, it seems like the whole thing is exceptions to Proverbs, and talking over and over about the meaninglessness of, of life, right, the vapor, this, this vapor, this ungraspable meaninglessness. Um, but, just like Psalms was supposed to be read through the prism of 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we should also understand Ecclesiastes through the summary. So if we could get Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen through 14 read.
1: The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil.
0: So you, you, you have this monologue going on of all the meaninglessness of life, and then ends with, fear the Lord and obey his commandments. Um, so you, you have to read Ecclesiastes through the context of the entire book. And then we get into Job, and Job, um, in a similar way, we need to read the entirety of Job to discern what was wisdom and what was foolishness from the friends and from Job himself in his response to God. There's a whole lot to be learned there in, in other things about about God and, and his interactions with the adversary as well. Um, but um, at the end, it, right, it rightly corrects, um, ends with the correct understanding of the mystery of God's providential workings. And what I love is Job at the end seeks repentance for relying on his own wisdom. And this is the, the prism through which we should look at the book of Job so job forty two one through six
4: then Job answered the Lord and said, "I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the, of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and
0: ashes." Alright, I, I love that. Job, after going through all of this, all of this experiences, the more experience he has gained in life, the, less, the more he realizes he does not understand God and is not, doesn't understand the perspective of God the way he ought, and then he repents of relying on his own earthly wisdom. Okay, we covered a lot there. We're a few minutes past. I appreciate you bearing with me and us speeding up there. Um, I, and um, I hope as we go to read our scriptures this week If you're working your way through scripture I hope you're able to identify a figure of speech at some point point. And I also, if you're working your way through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job um, That you, you're a little better grounded in your ability to interpret those things And understand um, the context of, of those books Alright, let's pray Father, we are so grateful um, that we get to be here fellowshipping together, Lord. Um, We don't just come to you to worship, to obey, Lord, but also to be filled and enjoy the blessings that you've given us through this obedience of the worship of you, Lord. I pray that our worship will be a holy, pleasant incense to you, Lord, that it will be a sweet smell and that our music will be a sweet sound to your ears, Lord. I pray that you will bless our morning worship Lord, please call us. Let us be called to repentance. Let us be called um, to your son yet again. And Lord, may we leave church today being better prepared and more like Christ so that we can better worship you, Lord. I pray you bless this day. In your son's name I pray, amen.